Please take your Bibles and open them to Matthew. We're going to be Matthew chapter 14 this morning. This is one of those unusual passages of Scripture that often, I think, can be ignored in terms of its themes and how Matthew is using this to remind us of the opposition to God's kingdom that is often expressed in the average life of the average person. So I'm going to read Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. It's a story of, or the account of Herod and the beheading of John the Baptist. And and he's putting it right in the middle of a discussion of Jesus, where Jesus is experiencing rising opposition. And so we're, we're learning both about Jesus and John the Baptist this morning. Matthew chapter 14, verse 1. At that time, Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about the fame of Jesus And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod. So that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry because of his oaths and his guest, so he commanded it to be given. And he sent and, John, uh, sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother and his. That's John's disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. It's a rather unique passage, isn't it? In the middle of, of walking through the preaching and teaching ministry of Jesus, Matthew's giving this account and pulls out of, of the narrative of Jesus and gives us a snapshot of what's happening in the broader context of Israel with Herod and John the Baptist. Let me just give you a little background here. You might have been somewhat confused. In the, in the passage here, in verse 3, it talks about Herodias, Philip's wife. So, the, the Herodian dynasty is really confusing in a lot of different ways. Herod the Great is the one that tried to uh, execute the, the baby born in Bethlehem and sent all of the children that were two years and under to their death. Uh, that was Herod the Great. He was a man that was suspicious and somewhat psychotic at the end of his life and killed tons of people. Even at his death, he had ordered that 800 people be killed just at his death so the whole nation would be sad. I mean, that, that's how... I mean, if you want people to grieve for you, just slaughter a whole bunch of people. They're all grieving. You might as well take the credit that they're grieving for you, apparently, Herod the Great thought. Well, he had multiple uh, children from multiple different wives. So the Herod we're looking at today is Herod Antipas. He's the Herod that in Luke chapter 13, Jesus calls the fox. Now, he probably calls him the fox not because he is sly like a fox, but because Herod thought of himself as a lion, this, this majestic, terrifying beast, and Jesus simply calls him a fox because he's pretty harmless. In other words, he's impotent and powerless, even though he thinks he rages like a lion, is probably the point of that um, criticism by Jesus Christ. So, Herod Antipas has a brother named Philip. What's really confusing is he's also called Herod. So, Herod Philip is married to Herodias. Apparently, she was famed for her beauty. And while in Rome, Herod Antipas interacts with her. And they agree to marry each other, but they're both married. 
So they both divorce their current spouses. Now this is a problem for Herod Antipas because his wife is the daughter of another nearby king. And when we say king, think powerful king-like governor under the Caesars of Rome. So Herodias marries Herod Antipas. Well, here's the other problem. Herodias is married to Philip, who is the half-brother of Herod Antipas. So marrying your half-brother's wife is condemned in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20 as incest. If you want to make it a little bit weirder, Herodias is also his half-brother, his other half-brother's daughter. So he's marrying his half-brother's daughter, which is kind of his niece. And he is marrying his brother's wife, same person. And John the Baptist says, this is wicked. This is disgusting. This is sin. And we, we have a, I mean, it's easy for us to criticize other people, right? So we look at this and we think how messed up Herod was to marry his brother's wife and his niece. But this was, this is the Herodian dynasty. This is Rome. This is what they do. This is normal. But, but the real danger for all of this for Herod is it undermines his ability to be king and it undermines his position with the people. In fact, Herod the Great built the temple just to curry favor with the Jews. He would identify himself as one of them and Herod Antipas parades himself as a Jewish man who's following the Jewish law. So when John preaches... That the, the area's governor, that King Herod, is in fact rejecting God's law, living with a woman who he's living in incest with. In fact, I think it's interesting that in this passage, Matthew records not that she's Herod's wife, but that she's whose wife? Philip. Apparently, Matthew still legally identified Herodias as Philip's wife, even after the marriage to Herod Antipas. Herod was immoral. He was a wicked man who rejected God. And ultimately, he ends up dying in Spain, dethroned by the Caesar of Rome. But he was also a man who was a coward. And I think this passage highlights that for us. And I think it's worth, worth noting that a man who has no moral anchor in God's revelation probably also will do whatever he finds expedient in the moment because he has no anchor. So when you look at this passage and you begin walking through what's going on in the passage, it's his birthday. He's having a celebration. He's having a feast and he's celebrating his own birthday. It's not totally abnormal nor wicked. But, it, but in this party setting, his niece, half-niece, step-niece, I don't know how you'd identify, her name is Salome. She's a little girl is, is the, the Greek term when it says the girl came to her mother. The identification is not that she's like a grown woman, but that she's probably like a 12 to 14-year-old girl, is dancing in front of this uh, large party of probably men and women. But it was a type of thing that sleazy women did. I think it might be the best way for me to describe this. And so for, for this princess to be dancing publicly, most commentators think it was incredibly sensual and sexual dance by a 12 to 14-year-old girl in front of a whole bunch of men and women. We should be rightly, probably, disgusted by that. And all of Israel should have been disturbed by Herod's um, immorality. But if you look in this passage, why did Herod not kill John the Baptist? 
Look in verse 3. Herod had seized John and bound him and put him into prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. So why is John in prison? Because his wife made him do it. Right? Right? Like, he is doing this under the pressure from his wife. So why did not Herod kill John? Look at verse 5. He wanted to put him to death. That Greek word for wanted there is he repeatedly wanted to. That is, he, he regularly thought about how he could kill John, but he didn't because why? He feared the people. He was afraid of the impression of people. In fact, when you look at what Josephus says, Josephus was an unbelieving Jewish man at the time. He writes this about this circumstance. He says, Now some of the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's army, let me hit a pause here, the reason his army got destroyed was the angry father-in-law of the girl he divorced to marry Herodias, attacked him with his army, destroyed his army, and he was only saved by Rome. Some of the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's army came from God. And that very justly, as a punishment for what he did against John, that was called the Baptist. For Herod slew him, who was a good man, and commanded the Jews to exercise virtue, both as to righteousness towards one another and piety towards God, and so to come to baptism. Now remember, this is a Jewish man who was not a believer saying this about John the Baptist. Uh, He continues on. Now when many others came into the crowds about John the Baptist... For they were greatly moved and pleased by hearing his words. Herod feared, lest the great influence of John had over the people might put it into his power and inclination to raise a rebellion, for they seemed ready to do anything that John should advise. He thought it best to put him to death. It's interesting that Herod, both for the security of his own power and for the security of his marriage, acting in fear, imprisons John. And so here he is at this birthday party. His stepdaughter and niece dancing in front of this crowd. He wants to play the big man. And if you remember the story of Esther, Esther pleases the king and the king says to him, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And the point is that the king would retain 50.001% of his power would still be the king. And so he says, up to half my kingdom. Here, Herod echoing uh, the words of the king in Esther's day says, to this young girl, I mean, can you imagine giving, let's say, a 12 to 14-year-old girl up to half your kingdom? Commentators think that perhaps he's drunk, but at, at, at best, he's just dumb. Just foolish and arrogant, trying to show off and show his kingliness and, and trying to, to play the big man in front of this party of people where his niece has just danced in front of all of them. Look in verse 6 with me. Herod's birthday came Herodias' daughter dances, and it pleased him, so he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So prompted by her mother, so this young girl goes and says, hey, what should I ask for? Well, Herodias sees her opportunity. This guy's a threat to her marriage, a threat to her position and power, and so she says, hack off his head. And think about what an immoral society this is. What would happen in any birthday party of yours if someone brings the head of a human being into the party? Like, All of a sudden, the music stops and everyone's grossed out, turned off, disgusted by your just violent nature. Rome Rome had experienced this type of party before. In fact, some of the um, critics of this account in John say, well, that would have ruined the party. But in fact, uh, there's an account of a Caesar killing 800 people at his party 
for onlooking purposes, for the spectacle of it. Well, here we have John the Baptist then beheaded. The king was sorry because of his oaths and his guests, so he commanded this to be done. Now think about what that, what that really is saying. Here the king traps himself in a position where in order not to lose face, he has to do what he knows he should not do. And not having enough courage to stand up to his niece, not having enough courage to stand up to the pressure of his wife, he once again acts like a coward and kills John the Baptist. Brings the head to the party. This is a sad commentary on a sad and immoral man who is moved by the expediency of what works in the moment. But I think there's a bigger picture going on. I want you to go back to verses 1 and 2. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. He said to his servants, this is whom? Why does, why does Herod think it's John the Baptist? Well, here's his, here's his suggestion. It's John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead, and that's why he's doing these miracles. That's why he has this miraculous power. Herod, moved by guilt for the murder of John the Baptist, his incestuous marriage, and his wickedness of lifestyle, thinks that John the Baptist is a ghost come back to haunt him. And that's why he's doing these supernatural powers, that this is, this is the hand of God moving against him. Now, Herod's completely wrong. But do you see a little bit of guilt in Herod's response and his interpretation of these events? Herod thinks God is after him. Let me just ask you, what would you do if you thought God was after you? What does Herod do? He's just eager to see Jesus. And by the end of Jesus, the story and the account of Jesus here in Matthew 26, what is Herod doing by Matthew 27? He's consigning Jesus to death. What a sad narrative. So I want to take just a moment and ask, why did John so infuriate Herod? Why did the Jewish people have such a love for this man? I'm going to take you to Luke chapter 3 quickly. If you look in Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist's preaching is, it's on point. And it's pretty blunt. Verse 7, he says, um, when the crowds come to him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Boy, that's a kind and winsome way to preach at people. Crowds come to me, it's like, you are children of poisonous snakes. Now, why do the crowd, why do they respond to that well? Because in fact, that was as a people who they were. In fact, he says then, verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I think he does two things that are incredibly gracious for any good preacher to do. He tells the truth even when they don't like it. And this is what we want from our doctors, kind of. Right? Like if we have cancer, we want the doctor to tell us we have cancer so we can get it cured. If we need to lose weight, they can just cork it. Right? Like every doctor seems to give that general advice, lose weight and exercise. It's like, yeah, we've heard that enough, we know, and we'll just live with the guilt. But if we have something serious that needs urgent and quick attention, we do want to hear that. I mean, if we have some, you know, mole inside our neck that might be cancerous, we want them to tell us. 
And John the Baptist doesn't say you brood of vipers because he's unkind. There are two problems holding them back from the gospel of grace. They think they're good. And John says you're not. He doesn't do it to be unkind. When John the Baptist preaches against Herod's marriage, why do you think he does this? He probably does it for two reasons. For Herod's sake and for a society that in general has no regard for marriage. It was considered an open scandal that the Pharisees ran through wives by divorcing them. They repeatedly would divorce their wives. And we don't think of Pharisees like that, do we? We think of the like, kind of Puritans that like, would never do anything wrong. We're all self-righteous. But they, they looked at the Old Testament and they saw in, in Deuteronomy 24 and they somewhat twisted Scripture to get here. They thought you could divorce your wife for any matter. They put a comma in there. It says any matter of indecency. Any matter or indecency is how they read that. And so marriage was disregarded. Immorality was accepted by the Roman Empire. And John is preaching to the people of his day saying, you are in trouble. You know who never gets saved? The person who does not see their sin. The culture that does not think it's wicked. And rather than letting them go on in their ill-conceived and misidentified sin, he points it out and says, you are actually filled with the poisonous venom of snakes. You need rescue. That's a gracious message, even though it doesn't land kindly. It's the type of message sinners need to hear. He also removes from them a false view of security. You know who else never needs to get saved? Those who might acknowledge that they need salvation but think they already have it. So if you go back to John's message, if you're with me in Luke chapter 3, he says, you're a brood of vipers, and then he tells them to bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and don't assume that because they're Jewish, they're saved. He says, don't say you have Abraham as our father. We're Jewish. We're good. We're God's people. We're God's chosen and elect. Of course, we're saved. He's like, listen, do not presume that you're truly rescued from God's wrath simply because of your heritage, background, or standing in the community. If God wanted to, and this is an amazing statement by John. If, John, if God wanted to, John says, he could raise up what? Children for Abraham from stones. In other words, God doesn't need you. God is not obligated to save you. God has not in any way guaranteed your salvation outside of any other means than Jesus Christ. And the assumption that you're good enough, that you grow up in a Christian home, that you go to church, that you do some good things, is a type of confidence that would have been echoed in their culture with different labels. It says you have no confidence outside of God's grace that you would be saved. So do what needs to be done. Repent and believe. Otherwise, what's coming for you? Verse 7. You brood of vipers who warned you to do what? Run from wrath. The clear preaching of John is actually gracious preaching. He takes pains to remove from people a false view of righteousness and a false view of security so that people might run into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. But when you first read that, aren't you like, whoa, wow, chill, John. 
Like just, no one's going to listen to you very long if you keep preaching like that. They might actually cut off your head. Right? You know what Jesus' commentary on John is? No one to that stage in history had ever been born who is greater than John the Baptist. It says, none born of women is greater than him. John fearlessly and faithfully called people away from sinfulness and away from pride. When you come to Matthew 3, let me just read this for you. I'm going to read first John's preaching, then Jesus' preaching described in Matthew. So Matthew 3, 1 and 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4, here's Matthew's description of Jesus' preaching in verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent. Want to finish the sentence for me? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark 1.4, John appeared baptized in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus recording in Mark 1.15, Jesus preaches and says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. When you look at the, the, the preaching of both John the Baptist and Jesus, they're both preaching what? Repentance. Now what is Repentance. Repentance is a word that speaks to a transformation of the inner person leading to a transformation of behavior. And so John will sometimes say, bring fruit that shows us your mind has changed. Bring forth fruits of repentance. He's not saying just change your behavior. He's not simply saying to Herod, fix your marriage stuff, you're a mess. He's calling Herod to understand the message of God's word. In fact, when he says it's not lawful, he's certainly not talking about Roman law. He's talking about God's law. And he's saying, submit to the scriptures, Herod. Follow God. Maybe it'd be worthwhile just to, to point out that it's easy for us to say to Herod, you bad guy, you. How dare you? And fail to recognize that within our own culture, we are very much crippled by blindness to our own sin. The prophetic preaching of John puts his finger on the needs of the day. You want to be someone who's not liked in society, then speak to the sins of the day. Speak to where society struggles. It seems like the one sin that is not tolerated ever is the cultural crime of intolerance. Have you noticed that in our culture? If you're to speak out against homosexuality, we actually have words to catalog you. You're a homophobe. Now, I would think that John's reason for preaching against Herod and calling people vipers is not to label them and name call them but to suggest that the most loving thing we could do with someone who's in immorality, whether it's homosexual immorality or heterosexual immorality, is to call them away from it. Now, the church has been embattled in a fight for culture for 70 years. And if you're going back to the 50s, let me just catalog this for you because I think it's worthwhile for us to have a little bit of self-awareness. If you were to go back to the 50s, you'd see the rising up 
of immorality as a cultural norm, premarital sex and extramarital sex. So that by the 60s, with the invention of birth control, you have the, the revolution of love. And by that we should think the unleashing of sexuality on American culture that ruined the fabric of the home and marriage. So you know what the, the church was preaching against in the 60s? Sexuality and the music they associated with it, rock and roll. You start moving to the 70s, and now you have an anti-authoritarian movement and a peace movement that called people to reject the government and see the government as bad. And so you have the church preaching against those types of things. By the 80s, it starts moving to homosexuality. Now you can feel in our culture that there are other things moving us, whether, whether it's the, the kind of the sexual revolution taking the next step and actually embracing as marriage two people of the same sex living together, or whether it's transgender stuff. It's, it's as though the church only has an attention span for what's in front of it. Do you know what's still under attack? Marriage. In the 1960s, with the sexual revolution, it's like marriage became optional. And the church is like focused intensely today on transgender stuff. And not that we shouldn't be like calling our culture to repentance, but the worst thing about our culture is not these kind of sins of the day. Is that we're Christless. We have no anchor for our morality. We are Herod doing whatever's expedient, whatever makes us happy in the moment as a culture. And if the church's message is only so focused on the battle of the day, then probably what we have in a church like ours is our young people are not hearing clearly to battle against things like pornography, like their lives depend upon it. When Jesus preaches something like, if your eye causes you to stumble, that is sin, pluck it out. Because it's better to go to heaven with one eye or even blind than go to hell with your whole body. And we are sitting here battling a culture. I don't think we have any transvestites in our church. And preaching against people who are not present is easy to do. John's preaching went right at the people listening to him, which would have included Herod, who apparently listened to him at times. So maybe we should ask the question, what do we struggle with? Maybe it's laziness. Maybe it's indifference to those who are hurting near us. Maybe it's just greed. We are not generous with our money. And do not think that God looks at Herod with a special level of hatred and judgment and is okay with your indifference to how the gospel should transform your anger to gentleness with your children. It is so easy to be the hypocrites. John's preaching looks at what the people in the day are struggling with 
and he unloads gospel prophetic preaching. He calls them to grace. He calls them from sin. He calls them to come to the kingdom of God by turning and repenting. And that's what we need in our churches. That's what we need in our community. If we are always looking for the the front leading line of battle in our culture wars, I think sometimes we miss the essence of where our churches and our communities struggle. Sure, there are people who struggle with sexual sin in Bakersfield of the worst sorts. And it's easy for us to be the Pharisees in this passage, isn't it? To look at them and think, God's coming after you. While our homes are filled with pursuing excellence in academics, while our Bibles grow dusty. To never ask our children to forgive us when we're wrong. Can I just encourage you that John's preaching would call each of us to renewed pursuit of grace by recognizing personal pride and pursuing the ethic of the kingship of Christ. John would never be okay with a self-righteous church pointing its finger at the world and saying, you're going to burn. As John does this, he's in fact preparing them for the kingdom. I want you to, if you're still in Luke, I, I think some of you have turned away. Um, but if, if you were to go in Matthew, it's a parallel passage in Matthew eleven ten. That's the passage I'll read. Here's what scripture says. Quoting from Isaiah, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare the way before you. Now this is a prophetic word about John preparing the way for whom? Jesus, that is John's that advance guard. We do this with, with our presidents. We send a, a forward group of people to prepare a building or a, an area for the president to speak. So the Secret Service goes in, make sure that all the tall buildings are covered so that no one you know, takes a shot at the president. We, we send this advanced guard to, to protect what is precious. John was sent by God to be the advanced preparation team for the Messiah, for the king who's to come. She says, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare this way before you. I, I say to you truly, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So John comes and he preaches the message of the kingdom, the message of the king. And he prepares people for the king by calling them to turn from sin to turn from self-confidence and pride and to trust in Jesus Christ. As we consider John's preaching ministry, Matthew puts this here to give us hope. And I think a little bit of explanation. Let me ask you, if you were to con uh, converse with your coworkers, your neighbors, your, your friends, maybe even some unbelieving family, what is their response when you call them I mean, if we were just to quote John, you brood of vipers. What is the response of our culture if we are to, to press back and identify sin as sin? Generally speaking, what is the response? So I want you to consider the comfort that Matthew is giving to his readers, especially in the immediate aftermath of the death of Jesus Christ and the uprising of the church and then its suppression by Rome. I want you to imagine that you're huddled in a catacomb in Rome, 
sneaking out to buy groceries to keep your family alive, afraid that if you get found, that you'll be tortured and burned by Nero. And you're reading Matthew. What comfort does Matthew give to you? Well, I think when you look at this passage, Matthew is showing us that Jesus' ministry, despite the fact he's not only the Son of God, not only powerful, but that Jesus and John both experienced stiff opposition that led them to their death. And so John, not only is the forerunner preparing the way for Jesus, John foreshadows the death of Jesus Christ. John teaches us that gospel ministry will often include persecution and suffering. Look with me in Matthew 17. Matthew 17, verse 12. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. Now, he's speaking about John the Baptist. We'll see that in a moment. But he's using that phrase, Elijah, to speak of the prophetic ministry of John the Baptist. So I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they do not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So as Matthew is walking through the recording of Jesus' ministry, and he's showing us what to expect and what's coming, He's showing us that not only John the Baptist suffered, they did him whatever they pleased, but that also that shadow of John's suffering falls on Jesus who will also suffer and die. Because the next few passages, we're going to see Jesus feed 5,000. We're going to see him walk on water. We're going to see him heal people. And so Jesus' ministry might be misunderstood to be one of just success after success, power after power. Matthew says no. He had a very mixed response. I think there's two applications that, that Matthew's pressing upon us. One is that we would recognize that if we are going to preach faithfully for people to follow the king, what do you think we can expect? Do you think that we will win favor with those who are entrenched in sin if we preach to them that sin must be turned from? I think sometimes we are under the impression that Christians should be well-loved because we're lovable. I think we should be well-loved because we're filled with graciousness. But our words often call the sinner to identify his sin and claim the guilt of it so that they might be forgiven by coming to Christ and asking for forgiveness. Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness because they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Why do people not respond well to the gospel? It's not because of just ignorance. It's because within each of us, there is an autonomy and pride that resists the standard of God, and the kingship of Christ. I think you see that in our culture, don't you? That is, when our culture hears the morality of Scripture, they almost laugh at it. As, as though Christianity is, please forgive me, homeschoolers, as though Christianity is the um, poorly clothed, high-water-wearing, 25-year-old van driving, out-of-touch group of people who just needs to get with the program. 
That's how the world may view a Christian who says, I will not involve myself in that type of behavior until I'm married and it's righteous for me to express it that way. And I think anyone who divorces without cause is doing sin. And I think that I should tell the truth even when it hurts me. And I will not steal from my boss and no one should or it's sin. And I will not go on welfare and be lazy and not work if I have the physical capacity to do so because it is sin to do so. The person who lives like that, the world is going to look at and be like, you've got to be kidding me. What is wrong with you? To identify homosexuality as sin in our culture is anathema. It is to be avoided like leprosy. We don't do this because we want to. Like stand out like a sore thumb and be weird? We do this because we submit to the king. And we live by his grace. If your goal in life is to be accepted, to be respected, to be appreciated by the secularist who does not have Christ, you're in for a life of disloyalty to your king. What did John's preaching cost him? His life. What did Jesus' preaching cost him? His life. If you follow the kingship of Christ, he demands that you follow him. And it may not cost you much of anything, but it may cost you everything. And we just simply must faithfully follow. Herod was a man gripped by a fear of people, a fear of losing his power, a fear of disappointing his wife, a fear of looking stupid at a party because he said dumb words. And in those fears, he ends up being a man who, unless something happened at the end of his life that we're unaware of, will spend forever in hell. And it's not because he didn't know the truth. John had preached to him repentance. So, two things. Submit to God. And be a person who follows the truth. Pray for our church to speak the truth with grace and call people to follow our Savior. Matthew is helping us understand that the gospel of the kingdom is radically different than this world. And it comes with costs, but it promises us the grace of the kingdom of Christ. If I were just to add one thought, when we talk about salvation, we can often say that you can accept Jesus Christ as Savior or um, trust in him or pray this prayer or accept Jesus in your heart. And these can often be acceptable phrases that cover up the fact that we come to Jesus as king. And we kneel, at least metaphorically, in front of him and say, I will obey. I will follow. I will let your guide, your rules lead me. And if you have not done that this morning, then like Herod, you may be married to the prettiest girl in the room, metaphorically speaking. You may have a wonderful life. You may be king of your castle like Herod and end up judged by God forever because you don't have King Jesus as your Savior. 
If he is not your king, he is not your savior. So trust in the Lord and be saved. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Commit yourself to following him no matter what. Turn from your sin and he will save you and free you forever. Would you do that this morning? Would you be willing to just ask the Lord to save you and to forgive you? And would you follow him in faith no matter what the cost? Father in heaven, thank you so much for the life and death of Jesus Christ who shows us how good a king he is by dying for us. Shows us how bad a sinner we are by dying for us. Shows us how infinite his mercy is by dying for us. Shows us how powerful his grace is to save by raising from the dead for us. And shows us how faithful he is by standing at your side, interceding for us, praying for us. Father, what a wonderful king we have. Father, forgive us for trying to redefine sin and make it not so sinful. Father, forgive us for trying to make our badness not so bad. And I ask that you would give our church just an open-hearted confession that we need grace because we're bad. We are not good. And to the core of our being, we say and do and think things that are unpleasing to you and hurtful to others. We are not good. Father, forgive us for blaming others for our responses. Forgive us for blaming others for our sinful desires expressed. I ask that you'd help our church to follow our King, to follow the values of the kingdom. Lord, help us to live for heaven. I pray that you'd raise up ministers and preachers in this church who are so faithful to the truth that like John the Baptist, they would be willing to be imprisoned or even die for the sake of the message of grace. And Father, even now I pray for those who have not embraced the grace of the kingdom of Christ. That you would call them to Jesus Christ. And they would recognize that freedom without Jesus, away from his rules, is no freedom at all but slavery to sin, leading to death forever. Help them to turn from that and accept Jesus Christ and be saved. Father, I pray that you'd strip from anyone in this room the false hope of heaven. And that they would put their faith in the true hope, which is Jesus Christ. Father, I pray these things because you can work. Your spirit can move, so please do these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.